Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Hope you didn't miss us too much on our week off last week and gave you a chance to catch up on some episodes you might have missed. But we are back this week and Robin is joined by Helen Chersky to talk to our good friend Professor Jim Al-Khalili about his new book, The Joy of Science. That is out now, so you can go and get that from your favourite independent bookshop. Remember that Josie is doing some previews of her Edinburgh Fringe show, Reenchantment. She's doing those online exclusively for Patreon supporters. So you can sign up at patreon.com slash bookshambles and you will get a ticket for one of those shows. They're going to be on Wednesday nights at 8.15pm, pretty much every Wednesday throughout July. We did the first one yesterday, in fact, if you were one of the people in the audience for that. Thanks very much for coming along. We hope you enjoyed it. And apart from that, obviously, you get lots of other goodies for being a Patreon supporter as well. If you can't support us on Patreon, we know that is not possible for lots of people. The shorter episodes will remain free for everyone, but you can share the podcast on social media, like, uh, rate, review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help us out as well. And of course, there's all the other free content on CosmicShambles.com for you to check out. Like this week... Uh, On Monday, it was the 10th anniversary, uh, appropriately, as we're talking to Jim today, of the discovery of the Higgs boson. So Professor John Butterworth, who was part of the team at Atlas involved in the discovery, he did an exclusive article for us on CosmicShambles.com on Monday about the discovery and what's happened in the 10 years since and what particle physics we can expect in the future to come out of CERN. So go to the site and check that out. But now from particle physics to quantum physics and all other joyful science, here is Helen and Robin and Jim. Right, welcome to Book Shambles this week. Um, I have just, we have just, Robin has just sat there and told me he's not going to heckle. He's here and he's not going to heckle, even though it is Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Um, but he totally is going to heckle and it's going to be fine. And together we are going to be having a really interesting conversation. I'm certain it will be, it may not stay on topic, uh, with Jim Arcalini, who will be familiar to lots of people who listen to this podcast, I'm sure. He has a very impressive title. It's Distinguished Professor of Theoretical Physics at the University of Surrey. And of course, he's written loads of books and he presents the life scientific on radio four and he's generally a good egg in the science world uh jim how are you doing very well thank you yes indeed right jim i'm just gonna butt in (laughs) the um i knew because you're not muted i knew he's gonna yeah of course i'm not the um this is we did a lovely event at blackwells in manchester we did and then i walked out of there to go and do a gig at excess malarkey and immediately had a terrible stomach upset and basically had to do the, i managed to do the gig on stage but i did it like the rest of the time at the club was waiting to be introduced while still sat on the toilet did you poison me 
<laughs> or was it someone else? Because it was a what? weirdest gig. I don't know if you've ever had a, a, a Philip Ball, the lovely Philip mm. Ball, the wonderful writer, was once so kind. Of, he did a show for me in Edinburgh where the night before he'd eaten some bad fish and chips and he came and he was green properly. You know that bit where you go, oh, you really have now. Um, and he went, no, I must still do your gig and I will do it. And he had that same thing, which is ah. introduce me. I should walk out of the toilet as if it's some kind of TARDIS. And there will suddenly come a point where I'll go, I'll be leaving again now. Goodbye. Well, you know, before the event, we we sat upstairs above the bookshop in the cafeteria and we had a, it was a plate of chocolate brownies. Mm. You might recall I didn't touch them saying I'm not so keen on chocolate brownies. So that, you know, that may give you so a It's hint. all your own fault, Robin. That's what it's your own. Yeah, or, or wait, maybe that I did poison them, which is why I didn't want to eat any myself. Yeah, yeah I knew. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? He'll do anything to end up sitting next to Brian Cox, interrupting him on some kind of Radio 4 show. <laughs> Uh, well, now Only. now we've learned to the, de the depths to which science shall go. We are supposed to be talking about a book called The Joy of Science, which Jim has written. But, the, but it's very, I think what we find, there is much joy in science, but actually it's far more fun to uh, poke about in all the other bits. I feel we should cover the book just a little bit. All right, then. And then let's, we can go back to writing. Let's get it out of the way. Because if yeah. we do a little bit, then we can... Um, then we can just we can all rant and everyone be happy exactly that's fine by me <laughs> bit of everything his new book food poisoning for beginners is the one i'm particularly interested in how to remove your least favorite comedian <laughs> well i reckon there's a legitimate science book in that that probably shouldn't be published for the good of the world um so okay this this is going to make my prompt to rant i did want to ask you so the book it's, it's one of those it's a lovely it's it's not a super long book it's about um the things that scientific thinking can bring you. But I wondered why, why write it now? Because I think you've been saying a lot of these things for years. We've all been saying a lot of these mm -hmm. things for years, you know, and, and you've packaged them up really nicely in this book. And I just wondered whether saying all these things now, you know, that a bit of rational thought kind of gets you a long way. Is that, is that a reaction to anything or is that just, you know, well, it was time? I, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, it must be a reaction to the pandemic and how wider public have viewed science and scientists since the pandemic. But I mean, I started writing it before. I guess it's a reaction to, to a large extent, you know, sort of the, the populist governments uh, around today and, 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 and the polarization of views, particularly, for example, in America. You know, so it was probably more of a reaction to Trump than to the pandemic. <laughs> but it is it, it is a book of its time. And I think there are a number of other books. Well, Robin's writing about it. There's a book that's come out just um, recently. There's a, a Swedish, um, you might know him, Robin, Chris Sturm. Uh, Chris Sturm um, mm, I know you mean, yeah. But he's not going to help you no. out by telling you. This no, no, no. is why. This is why he's a distinguished professor because Crystal. he's reached the age where he goes. You know, the, the fellow you, did the thing. The, the thing with someone. Yeah, Christa Stomach. But but, but um, yeah. So on on rationalism and ra and rationality and and the, the importance of critical thinking, there are a number of us writing books now because I think it is important at the moment. I mean, all this all these issues about polarization of views and on and the amplification of extreme voices on social media is is something that we are having to figure out how to deal with and so my book is about well look this is how we do things in science when we do science properly I mean I'm not saying that all scientists are uh, have integrity and honesty and, and, and whatever but if the scientific method is used properly this is how we progress and, and advance our knowledge and maybe some of those tricks and techniques that we are trained in as scientists would be useful in in in, in wider society as well can I ask both of you something, which is because you mentioned this, even though you started writing it before COVID, I'm really intrigued in terms of 
the positives that you think people have learned about science because I don't think people have ever seen the scientific process to some extent up close in no, the that's way that true. we have during this period of time that now for some people of course we've realized that and this is the importance of your book one of the importances of your book I think is the explanation that science is not about saying this is now bible this is now a scriptural truth it is about saying this is the best answer we have now and it yeah. is the most useful answer yeah. that we have now now some people reacted to that going oh well, science said this in March and now it's saying this in May but other people did react I think by going oh I see what's happening a yeah. body of knowledge yeah. is building up and I wondered I'd like to hear about if you feel both you really the positives for those who've seen this in action I'll start Helen and then and then you take it up before Robin you know comes back it butts back in again yeah yes I mean I think you're right we talk about scientists having been in the spotlight during the pandemic uh, the epidemiologists and the virologists and the vaccinologists and so on and and you know Chris Whitty and Van Tam and Patrick Valance standing up there see them every day on TV showing us graphs and exponential curves it isn't about science scientists being in the spotlight it's about the scientific method being in the spotlight so absolutely a lot of people were confused by the fact that in science there's uncertainty and and learning that being uncertain doesn't mean we don't know it means we know what we don't know, putting you know, the error bars on. And this, yeah, and you're right, start of the uh, pandemic, people are saying, oh, hang on, you told us at the start of the pandemic, wash your hands and sing happy birthday through twice and we won't catch COVID. Now you're telling us we've got to open windows and, and wear masks and social distancing. You know nothing. But I think a large chunk of the of wider society who are not trained in the scientific method are getting it now, are appreciating oh i see oh so you're allowed to change your mind in the light of and it doesn't mean you don't know anything it means that you know what you know given the information and, and, and evidence that you have at that time and it's not bad science if you change your minds that's how science progresses so, i thought it was interesting that oh sorry if you're gonna yeah yeah no i was, I was just gonna say I thought, over to you well what was very interesting was that at the beginning it was almost easier to to send that message because at the beginning of the pandemic the, the uncertainties were so large it was obvious yeah it, there wasn't a pre-existing because normally i think when by the time science gets to the public a lot of people have been thinking about it for a lot of years there are well-established positions you know there's kind of a there's kind of a playing field which is known whereas with this it's like the big questions were obvious is it going to kill us all how is it spreading? How do we stop it spreading? And I think it was actually very helpful. And, 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 the, and that's when I think people's understanding of this process was greatest because you could kind of go, oh, well, we don't know. We, you know, we don't know anything. Let's find out some things. And mm. then I think it, but it's been interesting more recently, you know, perhaps, you know, restrictions in this country mostly disappeared now, but perhaps six months ago when actually the science became better known and then and then the and then the arguments came back almost because then you could pick a side and you could find mm. some evidence on both sides and so you could pick the bit you wanted and and i think there was it felt like to me there was a kind of shift between everyone totally on board with the uncertainty thing you know we don't know anything so a little bit of information is valuable and then being able to have a choice pick your pick your study and and you know and, yeah. and so that sort of um in a way it's as, as scientists in a way we, we think we're always in the first state we're like oh we don't know we don't you know we can always advance the problem to the point where we see lots of uncertainty and there's lots of exciting things to find out um mm. but it no, i think we're in this so we next phase now aren't we the where we you know okay so you see this is how science works we put a hypothesis together we gather evidence and we we think we've got the best explanation for now until we learn more we may have to change adjust our view 
The next step is how do, does wider society know who to trust, who to believe? Because your, your anti-vaxxers and, and the anti-mask wearers are claiming they're using science as well. You know, this is this scientific study says this, or you haven't got the evidence enough for that. So like any, any conspiracy theorist really believes they're doing good science. We're being rational, critical thinking, we're examining evidence, we're, uh, you know, and, and I think that's what the, where the public now has to learn what is the difference between a scientific theory, say, and a conspiracy theory, namely that a conspiracy theorist, no matter what evidence you give them, they won't change their mind. Uh, well, also, I think, and you, yeah, I think you actually wrote something, you an extension of that, which I think is important, which is that a conspiracy, a, a scientist, a scientist can tell you what piece of evidence would make them change their mind. Yeah. Whereas if you ask a conspiracy theorist, well, what could I show you that would convince you? Like they never, they, they literally, there's yeah. nothing on that list. There isn't anything <laughs> exactly because it's based on blind faith in, in not in a religious sense, but in some uh, ideological sense. It doesn't matter what you show me. This is what I'm going to believe. And I will adjust whatever information and evidence and data that comes. I'll either dismiss it because it doesn't go against, it goes against what I believe, or I'll twist it so it supports what I already believe. So it's, they're not doing science. It, you know, a, science, a good scientist will admit when they've made a mistake. And that's a strength of science rather than a weakness. That's the difference. Yeah, and it's getting harder, isn't it? I was, I was um, one of the things that uh, I may have mentioned on Shambles before was that, so, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a trustee of Royal Museums Greenwich. They've got all the ship plans for like all UK naval ships going back 200 years. And there are video game designers now making, you know, realistic uh, video game things. And they are going back to original ship plans from 1914 to use the, you know, they're, they're going to huge amounts of detail mm. to make their video games absolutely accurate to reality to the point of to be honest digitizing a large part of the museum ship collection for free because because right. they want to because they've got the money to do it but 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 it's that thing where you would look for signifiers right what are your little markers of whether you trust someone you know if someone showed you a cartoon of london and big ben was in the wrong place you would go oh well i won't i can see that's not true because yeah. this is very obvious thing which is not correct and, and what's happening in the world this you know the world of deep fakes is that people can manufacture almost everything you can mm. deliberately put in everything correctly all those little markers where you might spot oh that's not quite right that's not quite in the right place you can get all of that right and then sneak in you know then yeah. a dragon walks out of the the back room yeah. somewhere yeah yeah and and if if what that information the information that you're seeing or reading about is something that you want to agree with that that aligns with your worldview your ideological point of view then you're less likely to want to examine or look closely you will accept it at face value if it's something that you don't agree with you will be much more careful to investigate well hang on a minute is this true because i want to prove that it's not true so you'll be more more careful so it's it's it there's, it, there's an imbalance there we're much more likely to question other people's biases than our own so just, just being aware that that's an issue i think is a start yeah, no, and it's all, I think the awareness is important. I was actually just thinking, it's quite a mean, it might, this, this might be a mean question, but actually for both of you, it's part of the point, which is that when was the last, where, have you got any good examples of someone changing their mind in a public way and doing it well? Because I, now I'm thinking mm. about it, I'm not sure I can think of any examples. Of, yeah, of I mean, it happens, really it happens in science. You yeah. know, it happens, in, and even science, you know, you know, if you publish a paper or you've got a new theory or experimental result, of course you want it to be right. You're not going to, uh, you know, be happy that it is disproven. But but it does happen in science where you think, you think something, and then think, oh, actually, no, no, we made a mistake. 
you know it's, I, I, that does happen all the time because you know if 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 you if if you discover a mistake you te- if you're good <laughs> doing your science properly you will admit to it you know it's and it's there's no no shame i mean i've i've told the story about when i was i did my documentary on gravity for bbc and and realized that i i'd got it completely wrong talking about the gravitational field around the earth and it was just before the, the program was transmitted. And so, uh, you know, we had to put a stop to it. And we were told by the BBC, well, just reshoot the stuff that you got wrong and no one be any the wiser. And I said, no, actually, it'd be really nice in the story, a dramatic twist where I say, unfortunately, at this point, I realised I'd got it wrong. It wasn't me. It was my exec producer, Paul Sen, who discovered it. But I took all the credit for, for having, got it, <laughs> having got it wrong, as you do, you know. Um, uh, but they say, oh, no, don't do that, Jim, because, you know, we're worried about your reputation as a professor of physics, that you were admitting that you've made a mistake. I said, what's wrong with that? You know, no, I mean, quite genuine. I wasn't trying to be sort of uh, altruistic or, or sort of holier than thou. I genuinely said, what's wrong with admitting that I've made a mistake? If you don't admit your mistakes in science, you don't make progress. We'd all be thinking the, the, the sun goes around the earth. So you have to change. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to admit your own mistakes. Sometimes the next generation comes along. Uh, and says you were wrong to think like that we'd have a new theory but uh, yeah it, admitting your mistakes happens in science but you're right in everyday life would but wouldn't it be refreshing if in a debate on say on twitter where <laughs> it's all about point scoring and winning arguments and and someone says something valid and the, the other person rather than respond and say hmm, good point actually they'll they'll shift the goalposts and, and attack them from a different angle because you cannot show any weakness wouldn't it be refreshing if that honesty i think it probably (laughs) happens but people don't say it out loud they kind of go oh oh okay i'll go and think about that but it's so so you know when you when they don't respond i mean i i would say i've seen it quite often i've in what context in terms of doing stand-up shows in terms of people getting in contact afterwards and saying that they've changed their opinions on things about sometimes it might be about mental health sometimes it's been about religion you know, mm. it's, an, it's an interesting, you know, I, I remember being quite worried about this in a certain way. This guy came up to me when I was at a pedestrian crossing and he said, and he said, oh, I'm very sorry to stop you. I come to your shows at Christmas. And I was always quite kind of, I was pretty full on Catholic. And and I realized that uh, a lot of things that I was clinging on to, to believe were, were not really, they weren't tr- truths that were really inside me. And I've had a few mm. people say that. And it's not, in one way, I'd like to make this clear as well. I, this isn't showing off. And it was many people on those stages as well. You know, you both have been on those stages and talked about different ideas. So this is not about my my work. Um, and, you know, and my first worry as he left was, I hope he's found something. I hope he's not at sea now. And I did think, this was the nice thing, is that I did think that he was reasonably comfortable with the fact that he had been waiting it's like intro i was talking with daniel sloss the other day in fact it'll be a book shambles quite soon and the beginning of his book everyone you hate will die uh he writes about the number of divorces that he's caused uh and the reason is he did this show that he thought was kind of celebrating the fact that it was fine to be single but as he talked about some of the things of couples people started to go i don't think i am happy actually i don't think i am and genuinely, he would get all these people getting in contact and saying, um, thank you very much. I was in a relationship <laughs> and I realised this was not where I, I should be and what the life I should be having. And so I think sometimes, actually, it, it, it's not necessarily seen very, very clearly, as you were saying, Jim, in a moment of a Twitter argument or something mm. like that. 
It's a and I've certainly thing. changed in terms of my attitude to religion and my attitude to God. On, on the other side, has changed in terms of I have a lot more religious friends now, and I have a, a lot more interest in what they believe God is, and I have a lot less trust in the idea that if we remove religion somehow, we end up with a better world. I think if we remove fundamentalism, we're, but, but I think I was very naive not that long ago. I'm still very naive, but about different things. I'm probably naive about that as well. But I, 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 I feel that there has been a big change in my interaction with um, a lot of people with different kind of levels of, of, of belief. And I see that around me quite a lot. So mm. I, I think it is there. I think it's I, I think sometimes it's not just on one single big issue. It's about a world view. Yeah, so it absolutely. Can't always and, be summarized. Yeah, but but very often it's a gradual, a gradual mm. change of perspective. I, I mean, um, my wife Julie, you, you both know Julie. She, um, uh, I think, over the years after her dad died, she spent a lot of time with her mum, and and her mum was probably you know sort of conservative with a small C and. Uh, you, you, you know, sort of, sort of right-leaning in terms of her politics and worldview and religion and so on. And I think just, Julia wasn't chipping away at her, you know, in some sort of insidious way, but gradually, you know, her, Julie's more sort of liberal, left-leaning worldview filtered through to her mum. And by the time before she died, you know, she was, uh, she, you know, she asked for a humanist wedding, um, uh, wedding humanist funeral, um, you know, and, and, and her views were very much, but that was a gradual thing over the years of of just you know, uh, absorbing a different worldview and coming around to, to changing her mind, as opposed to the killer, as you say, you know, the killer argument or the killer point, you make something and, and in a flash, someone says, good, my God, I, that, I thought that, but you're right, actually, it's, uh, you know, I, what I thought was wrong. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. I love this idea of living in an echo chamber. Oh my God, if I could just get the building plans, perhaps, you know, I, I, I don't know who originally, you know, created, but, but it was probably, you know, Buckminster Fuller. I'm sure one of his geodesic domes could be turned into, into an <laughs> this echo is, chamber. There's an echo chamber but we can stay. Actually, yeah. I think no, the problem yeah. is that we keep hearing other opinions which have now become so extreme. So it's not that we're just hearing the same voices. It's that the, the problem is more that the voices that rise to the top are both the ones that embrace us most and they're the ones that reject us most. And yeah. the middle ground is... is yeah. But, but now, I still think that has been an issue for a And I, th I think the echo chamber business, absolutely. I I, I agree with, with Robin here that, you know, before the internet, before social media, people just read one newspaper. You know, I, I'm a, a Guardian reader or Daily Mail reader or, or Daily Mirror reader or whatever. And you'd watch, you know, BBC News or ITV News or whatever. And you'd go down the pub and you'd talk to your mates, but they're the people who, who probably grew up in your neighborhood who have the same worldview as, as you do. And so you're not aware that there's a whole nother way of looking at the world. But, you know, with social media, it, it's there. You do see it. I think you have to be, I mean, I don't do the going down the rabbit hole in social media. I, I avoid, if I see something, you know, that someone's tweeted something that Lawrence Fox has said, or that's, that, that uh, Julia Hart Brewer said, or Sarah, I, I don't go there because I know it's going to make my blood boil. 
Uh, and so I, I just, I just look at fluffy things and lovely. Scientifically you know, considered a bad idea. Oh, you know, pictures of stars <laughs> that Brian tweets and that sort of yeah. thing. Nice and nice and cosy. <laughs> I saw a lovely Katie Mack. I'm just going to mention it. Just retweeted uh, a lovely animation that someone did of why very old galaxies that are actually much further away can look closer due to the expansion of the universe. And it, and it was, a, and I just say, if you go and have a look at Katie Mack. What was she? She's Astro Katie, isn't she? Astro Katie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I always love looking at the things. That she tweets. She, do you know what? she's the number one physicist on Twitter by some? Do you, Helen? Do you get yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, really? No, I've heard that. So I don't tweet very much anymore for oh, right. okay. several reasons. Some of which are anyway. There's a whole separate story there. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but one of the reasons actually I don't tweet as much is that I I I I don't want to state things that pick sides. What people love on Twitter is a statement where you can pick yeah. a side, and I don't want to make statements where people pick sides, but no one's interested in anything else. And, it, and so I many big problems yeah. in the world that it feels quite trite to go, oh, look, I've just visited a uh, Victorian sewage works. You know, yeah, when, no, no, when that's there's wars and pandemics, it feels that's not no, the no, right no, thing but, either. But I think so. you have to, because if you just, if people, this is one thing that I think has changed is we are connected to the bad news around the world perpetually in a way that was not possible before. And as we know, that will have mental health implications. And people seeing you standing in your Wellington boots in some Victorian sewage farm, I think would delight them. Uh, I, and I think we have to, if we perpetually go, oh, this is a terrible day and awful things have happened and I've enjoyed myself, then people will not that they, they you have to give them a bit of light whatever it is and you know and i love seeing those things you know like you were saying jim you know some of the astronomers who put up john coolshaw is a wonderful you mm -hmm. know not only an impressionist but does these beautiful mm. astronomy photos and those things i think are. i, I mean i i feel very strongly that that was one of the things that came out for some people during covid was finding out that you had a network of people who you might not know on social media we had that look with cosmic shambles that nice thing you know when when, when all three of us were doing that 24-hour show in, in different kind of guises um you would see the way people were chatting to each other people who had never met uh mm. and like there was a point where we lost all power we lost all so we weren't going out for 40 minutes and trent said it's fine i'm just seeing everyone's getting to know each other in the chat room and and i think there's a lot again there's a lot of as, as you know we were talking about before we started recording this you know i trended on twitter the other day for having a, a comment about trying to decrease dehumanization in comedy and um most of what i saw because i've built some weird wall with really nice people sharing nice stories sharing sometimes sad stories but stories mm. that were reaching out and 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 i think that sometimes it's a bit like what was that book richard um wiseman wrote which was about uh the luck factor oh yeah lucky people aren't lucky unlucky people somehow don't notice things that are and i think it's very easy yeah, for yeah. our pessimism yeah. and i think that's what we can very easily do with a fast-paced information delivery system yeah is i think naturally we're almost evolved to see the bad news for fear that that's but it, the reason but, we'll but it is in the cave it, there is that you know temptation not to tweet some something that you might that people might regard as trivial or banal or you know when when the backdrop is some serious thing that's happening in the world you know you you, you get some awful news from from ukraine and then you want to tweet about something lovely and cuddly and trivial and you feel somehow that people are going to come back to say really you know is this what's uppermost in your mind when you know there were... so you do have to sort of pick your moments i guess and but would those people have they done anything? i think this is one of the things why i like that magazine positive news that yeah, gives yeah. you all the is um we we often feel that we need to be worried and sad 
but it doesn't lead to action. It doesn't lead us, you know, this is one of the problems. But actually, that's why I spend less time on Twitter is because what I'm doing, what I've decided, one, I mean, there's this, this a complicated thing and I don't just want to talk about myself, but one of the things I've decided, like I have projects I want to work on, books to write, things to produce, and that, that actually are things. And, and so that's part of not of being on Twitter less is that actually I can do things rather than just talking about things. But the problem is it's not visible. Maybe I should tweet about things I'm doing. I totally agree with that. I totally agree. That time where sometimes you look at the word count of how many things you've tweeted and you go, ah, that's slightly longer than the brothers Karamazov. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we should get back to, I mean, Jim, I'm, I'm interested, and obviously I've, I've, I think it's a very useful book. It's a great book. It's a kind of, uh, you know, it's about the size of Paul Nurse's lovely book, What Is Life, which I would also highly mm. recommend. And you can glide through it and you can make lots of little pencil marks of other places to go um you know for you what is that starting point for people out there who want to know how to deal with this flood of information where, where do you start with them it's like when a big science story comes out and maybe it's slightly contentious and, and obviously climate change is one of those big things that every time there's a new you know it suddenly becomes can become an utter truth when in fact there is not how mm. do people work their way through i i think it's acknowledging that there are people out there who know more about this stuff than other people. You know, there are experts. Uh, and I use the example in, in the book about, you know, my, I, my plumber comes around to fix my boiler. I don't say to him, no, don't worry. I've, I've checked it out on YouTube. I know exactly what to do. I can do it myself in the same way as I don't pull my own teeth out. I go to the dentist. Um, acknowledging that there are, you know, when you get, you see information, not necessarily having to dig into to find out the origin and, and, and just how trustworthy it is, but there is information that's come from a source where people know what they're talking about because they have expertise in that subject. And there is information that just comes from people because they it's their opinion. So just being able to just discriminate very broadly between expertise and mere opinion is a really good start. Not everything is should be held at, at sort of equal uh, weighting, that, that all the information you get. Um, it, once you dig down below that, then of course, you know, someone may look like an expert, they have they have expertise in something, but they have they may have ulterior motives, they may be in, in the pay of someone else, and there may be some ideological dodginess about them. But that's the next level. It's just, you know, my mate says this versus someone who spent their life studying epidemiology or, or, or whatever. No, so, someone has trained in this. They've earned their stripes to be able to have a view that is more valid than the view of someone who's just, it's just suddenly occurred to them that, to, to spout something. But I think that's becoming difficult, isn't it? Because I definitely see, um, you know, interviewing people for events, not sort of shambles stuff, but outside that, where people are starting to turn up and their job description is influencer or LinkedIn, LinkedIn windbag. That's not what they put on their CV. Right, right. But these are literally people that make a job, a full-time job out of um, having opinions on whatever the topic, whatever the topic is, right? Yeah. And they do spend their entire time thinking about it and they don't necessarily have a degree, any degrees in it. But I think that becomes very difficult for people because you look from the outside and you go, oh, well, you can see it's their job because you can see that they spend all their time doing it but they haven't got any training but then how do you distinguish that from someone who yeah. works in the business you know that it starts to become very different especially in the world of influencers and opinion you know this sort of opinion driven thing where people can spend a lot of time 
talking about something without actually having, you know, what but, but we might call yeah, training. Yeah, it is murky because if someone spent a lot of time thinking about a subject, they haven't got a piece of paper or certificate to say that they've, they've, they've followed a course and sat an exam in it, but they may have an, a deep understanding of that subject by virtue of spending enough time thinking about it. So they do have expertise in it. Uh, it's just, just how we measure that expertise. But then an influencer by virtue of, of some other skill or, or whatever stroke of luck that made them popular on social media, how do you discriminate you know, between them if they're both called influencers? But if anyone, if just someone has a large following on social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or whatever, it's not the large following that's important. It's, <laughs> it's how qualified they are to talk about a subject. But that qualification doesn't necessarily mean that it has to come through some sort of formal traditional channels. But it is becoming very murky. I mean, I think because I think these are the things where it's it used to be perhaps 20 years ago, you were either a professor or you weren't. And, and the availability of information on YouTube, which is great because it democratizes knowledge. Mm. Like, there's no that's a good thing in principle also uh you know leads to that thing if there's a, you know a little a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous, is dangerous thing, thing. yeah um, there are some stupid professors out there to be fair I mean. <laughs> oh yeah so the worst emails i get are almost almost worst by the by the, the sort of um worst because they're both entitled and wrong is retired professors who are commenting on something outside of their subject yeah you yeah. seem to have got the idea that being a professor makes them an expert in everything and have yeah. not worked out that this is not true. <laughs> they're there by, by of all the categories of email that I get without exception. And I'm sure it's the same for, you, for both of you. Those are absolutely the worst yeah, because you, yeah. they won't, they won't be told. <laughs> yeah. so well, we saw again, going back to the COVID thing, you know, some of the horrible stories of, uh, anti-vaxxers who then got very ill and died and had had started to you know go to make their youtube channels and all that kind of thing you know and some of them were people who were highly qualified they weren't scientifically qualified but they had not realized that their degree in history or whatever this didn't therefore mean that they had the full set of tools that were needed yeah to, and, and i th i always think that is you know it's a, it's a very it's a, well it's it's an anti-socratic thing isn't it you know that is the advantage of socrates isn't it is to constantly look at what you don't know rather than yeah, uh, yeah. what you do know yeah well, there was, yeah um there's a great phrase in i think using the book which is Ill illusory superiority which i thought yes. was a great <laughs> I really like that phrase. I struggle to say it clearly. But illusory superiority, that is a great, just tell us what that is, because that's brilliant. Well, it's, I mean, it, I mean, this is something that, you know, social you know, psychologists know, know very well. And, and it's linked with a lot of these ideas. There's something also called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The, 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 this, is, this is the idea that you don't know, because you don't know about a subject, you're not aware that you don't, you don't know about it. You know, if the more, you know, we see this on social media, the more you know about a subject, the more expertise you have, the more likely you are to know where the gaps in your knowledge are. And therefore, you don't engage. It's the people who are oblivious uh, about what they don't know, and assume what little knowledge they do know is enough. They're the ones that shout the loudest. They're the ones that, that, that feel somehow they're superior because, because you know, they're not smart enough or knowledgeable enough in that particular issue to know, to know how much they have yet to find out. <laughs> how much they, they've yet well, the to top line is always simplest, isn't it? It's, it's the further you go down, the more complication you find in any subject. 
Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 a it's a sad reflection on on on. I mean, again, it's not. We shouldn't blame social media for the ills of society, uh, but social media has held a magnifying glass to views that we've all always had. We've always had these. This part of the human condition that we, you know, we we believe conspiracies that we, you know, we we only trust those people who we already agree with and all that sort of stuff. That's none of that is new, uh, but social media has amplified it and, and brought it, you know, so that we are all exposed to those those marginal views yeah, I was wondering change, whether the psychology on. doesn't necessarily yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering whether um so you you know the life scientific has been going for you know, 10 more than 10 years now I think long mm -hmm. time yeah. and I wondered whether because I, I reckon I probably when you started scientists were still seen as being slightly odd otherworldly creatures who needed explaining and I was just wondering how all of like how, what, what changes you've seen in people's attitudes to scientists over that time you know the sort of reactions you get and the types of scientists you have i mean there's there's a temptation to think that you know the life scientific has has changed people's views of what science i mean it's you know it has a a large listenership um cut the two million people a week listen to every episode so but to some extent i guess it's a self-selecting audience people who come to it want, want to find out more are curious you know you know not everyone's a radio four listener and probably that's a good thing um but certainly, because it's not a program aimed at people who are coming to it because they want to find out about the science. It's not like, you know, a new TV program. To, oh, there's a program tonight on, on black holes or uh, whatever. I want, I, the radio's on, people are just listening to it. And, and so a lot of the people who, who do enjoy it are those people who have no background in science, who are probably afraid of science, who probably didn't like science at school, and suddenly realizing there's these normal people here with interesting life stories no different from anyone else who've done something remarkable and have changed the world in some way. Um, the fact that the program continues to be popular is really encouraging. I don't know whether it's how 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 can one possibly measure whether it's changed public attitudes to science and scientists, but I do think it's it's one of many things. The the sort of stuff that you both do in science communication. I think we are of a generation where we are. Uh, changing, you know, the science isn't about, I remember when I first started TV 20 odd years ago, the expectation was that if I did anything, I had to put on a white lab coat because that's oh, what yeah. science is I hate lab wore, coats. Right? I refuse yeah. to wear lab coats under almost all I, circumstances. I said, I said at the time, I said the last time I wore a lab coat was when I was doing A-level chemistry in, you know, in, in 1980. Um, it's ridiculous. And I don't think that is something that's, that, there's no expectation now that a scientist has to look a certain way. And in particular, when we're sort of diversifying and, and, and you know, uh, showing more women in, in STEM, you know, the notion was that science, I don't still obviously still get the stereotype that the scientist is white, middle-aged, male. Uh, but I think those attitudes are being chipped away at all the time and things are getting better. How much life scientific has contributed? I've no idea. I'd, I'd like to think. But in terms of the responses that you get, I mean, because people must oh, talk to you about what they thought hugely, about it, right? Hugely, hugely positive, hugely positive. People absolutely, you know, the people who come to me, I mean, obviously the people who don't like it are going to come don't. and tell me <laughs> they don't like it. But the people who do come to me, they say they're- Noting really, your own biases is somewhere in your book yeah, is a thing exactly, too, but yeah. Exactly, but, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it does have, a really lovely fan base admittedly the, the 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 average age is my age or a bit older you know but that's radio four listeners right you know that's not that's not because you know you get more interested in science as you get older 
Um, but yeah, people are very, you know, they find it fascinating and not because they want to learn about science, but it's because they want to, to acknowledge, they, they, they are discovering that scientists have fascinating stories to tell. And it's something that they hadn't assumed. They assumed all scientists followed a particular path and, uh, and they were very, very bright and very, very smart. And they did something that no one else can really understand. They are the boffins. And to, to appreciate that not all scientists are boffins, that science is very, very broad. There's different kinds of ways of doing science. And some of them, yes, yeah, some of them are privileged and, and, and uh, you know, found it easy, their path through academia. And others born on the wrong side of the tracks and, you know, battling against the odds. Those are the stories that people like, that scientists are just normal people who've done something remarkable. Well, I think it's than, always yeah. true that, yeah, whatever we say about science, the most interesting thing to a human being is another human being. I mean, yeah. that is very deeply hardwired into us. And, yeah. and so by turning yes. scientists into human beings, so you automatically make people more interested. Yeah. In and, them. you know, the life science, some, some programs, the, the, the scientist, very often the scientist doesn't have a really fascinating backstory, backstory or biography. Sometimes you think, well, you know, OK, you know, mum and dad went to Oxford or Cambridge. They went to the same college, Oxford or Cambridge, that parents went to. And, uh, and then they, they did, did undergraduate at Cambridge, did a PhD at Oxford. And they went back to Cambridge and they became a professor and... and, and um, nothing wrong with that but it's not such a fascinating story that people are going to relate to uh, but they may have done some wonderful science that is that, that is mind-blowing uh, and that that's maybe that's what that episode focused on others it may be that the, the, the science they did wasn't particularly you know didn't change the world but what an inspiring story journey that they've had getting to where they got to against the odds and so it varies depending on the guests. So it's, you know, we've done what, 260 guests. You're, you're, you're due to come on at some point, Helen. I think we had you down as a guest. Not oh, you, yeah, Robin. Sorry, you don't qualify. But Helen, we had you as, <laughs> we had you as a guest. I was asked, I think you I was asked before it. Christmas and I couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, you're still on the list. <laughs> so you'll, great you'll, you'll be on at some point. You'll join the hallowed uh, uh, <laughs> halls of, of the, the great and the good. Um, so my show that I'm the, guessing okay. on, the life non-specific, uh, <laughs> will be... I, I wanted to ask you, Jim, though, as well, which is because this is about the joy of science, if you can give me some examples of... Because obviously you talk about unweaving the rainbow and mm. some of those kind of ideas. Those things that you see in the world, and you really, and you perhaps you forget sometimes that the reason you can glory in them and delight in them is actually just that extra bit of knowledge that you have about yeah. why are you witnessing what you and and within that the knowledge then disappears and I I personally think sometimes you can have those transcendent moments that the seed of which is an understanding that comes from science and I wondered if you had any kind of you know examples so for people after this as as they look out the window hopefully it will be a lovely sunny day then as well or or even if they're looking at the rain or whatever it might be something that allows us to have both that scientific knowledge and then that link to transcendence yeah i mean i think you know, there are examples you know like i said i use the example of the rainbow in in the book because it's something everyone can relate to you don't have to have you don't have to go back and study physics in order to appreciate that no two people see the same rainbow right because it's you know different drops of water reflect light of different colors in different angles so you know the the red light i see in my rainbows come from droplets that are not reflecting that red light into someone else's so those sort of profound things anyone can appreciate for me what i find profound which is more difficult to to uh, convey to to non specialists uh, you know things like the you know the, the idea that uh, um time travels at different rates uh, you know and different heights above the earth and the experiment carried out by two american physicists in 1950 
pound and rebka you know and they they, they with, with with atoms and they drop them and the doppler shift and right so when i learned about that that was a genuine oh, shiver down the spine geeky moment which is very difficult to to share with other people the in-between example would be something like you know apart from hydrogen atoms all the atoms in our bodies were cooked inside stars uh, that's how they were made that's how they're synthesized and because there are lots of stars that then explode as supernovae and spread all those atoms that they've cooked they spray them out into space the atoms in my right hand chances are came from or an atom in my right hand came from a different star from the atom in my left hand so i'm not only am i made of stardust but i'm made of lots of different dust from lots of different stars just simple things like that uh, i i still find genuinely profound and and i don't see any reason why everyone wouldn't find them profound you don't need to have specialist background in, in physics or do a physics degree just to think wow that that is a mind-blowing fact uh, so you know yeah there are lots of simple examples that inspire other people in the joy of science that I still find joyful. Well, I think we're probably out of time. Helen. No, we're not. <laughs> no, time is tight. Time, time, time is relative. In, in your frame of reference. Well, I've but got in my a meeting in a bit, but carry on. Time. I'll very quickly just ask, because I wanted to ask you, Helen, as well, because of course you wrote the lovely book, A Storm in a Teacup, and I wondered, what did you find was the most, in, in terms of people getting in contact, there must have been one situation that you wrote, you know, these, these situations which are perpetually accessible in front of us that people in particular just went, ah, oh, every time I do this, I now see th there's a difference. There's a there must be loads of examples in, in, in Storm in a Teacup. Well, it, well in my case, it was more that people could try it. So it was thing. so raisins in lemonade, that mm. that one, people came up to me and still like, oh, I tell my kids, I get my kids to put raisins in lemonade. And, and I guess the thing about Storm in the Teacup was it's not so much about a conceptual idea. It's about something you can go to your kitchen cupboard and, and actually do and actually see something that you did not think you would see. And, and so even it's, you know, even children can appreciate that, you know, you don't, the thought about the stars is a very, very beautiful one, but you can't poke stars and play. No, with no, them. you just have to accept that yeah. <laughs> as, but, as an but, idea. But right. what it said in the book, you know, if you don't believe me about the raisins, go and go and get some raisins. Yeah, yeah. I should no, be absolutely. given commission by raisins uh, uh, producers or something and lemonade should ask them for that. Yeah, so, there's yeah. very little in quantum physics or nuclear physics that I can suggest people go and try for themselves, unfortunately. <laughs> so the superposition of the raisin does just doesn't work in a, in a in not a really experiment, does <laughs> not it? really. No, the, no. <laughs> um, Schrodinger's raisin doesn't apply. Exactly. Thank you both very much. Thank you very much to to uh, Helen, and thank you very much, Jim. And Joy of Science is, is you know, it, it's a it's a really it's a it's a great. When I say introductory book, but it doesn't mean that if if you've really read about these things, you won't enjoy it as well. It's it it I think will take you to lots of of, of different places. And uh, Helen, what are you up to next? Or you're just still hiding away for the time being? I'm you? hiding writing my book. It turns writing about the oceans really complicated, so it's just taking a long time because oceans and culture and history. I'm terrified of being told off by the historians, basically. So I'm learning a lot of history in order to write about a very small amount of it. Uh, but yes, so so I'm that's why I'm in my burrow, not tweeting. It's because I'm mm -hmm. working. Brilliant. <laughs> well, I, I can announce that today we just submitted our latest paper to Nature. So my 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 PhD Very student good. Max uh, has just submitted a paper to Nature on proton quantum tunneling of protons in DNA, 
So submitting it to nature is one thing, you know, whether it gets published is a completely different. That's a, we have a whole battle ahead of us. I <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, well, thank you both very much. Uh, the, our new series, uh, Taking the Universe Around the World, which is a, a podcast series about uh, the tour that I'm doing with Brian Cox, which is across the world, currently predominantly in the uh, USA and Canada. And we are going to be in we're various different places very soon. Uh, Calgary, Vancouver, Portland, uh, Sacramento, all manner of places. But that you can listen to that for free, Taking the Universe Around the World, Cosmic Shambles. Thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton and uh, one of us will be back next week it might be Helen it might be me it might be Josie it might be a kind of ramshackle confusion of the two or three of us thank you very much for listening remember support the show on patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles get an extended edition of today's episode and lots of other goodies as well rate like review five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast all the other places that you can listen to podcasts we'll be back next week with another new episode until then stay safe wear a mask in the shops if you can and on trains and stuff you know there's new variants and stuff it's a it's just wear a mask if you can it's please just just take care out there bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions